Hello and thank you so much for tuning into the Education Burrito, podcast that unwraps the everyday challenges in learning and teaching in education, exploring the ins and outs and highs and lows and different pedagogy approaches, enhancing student engagement amongst everything in education. My name is Q Sum, and each episode I'll be joined by special guests as we unwrap the Education Burrito. I'm buzzing because today I'm joined in this episode by someone who is a practitioner and a researcher in learning, education and researcher development. What they bring is the research-led, student-led enhancement in higher education, teaching, learning assessment. With an interest in academic literacies and pedagogies for a digital age, they help students in all subjects and levels of study to develop their academic literacies and become successful independent learners. I think this is what we all need, right? What's more, they're passionate about developing the value-driven and innovative models of skill practice in this emerging hybrid profession. What I particularly like is that at the heart of their practice is the conviction that students are the experts in their own learning. Acting as a skilled intermediary, they create emancipatory student-centred spaces allowing students to explore and negotiate university study. With the commitment to a skilled professional practice, they created the popular online course hashtag 10Duty or 10 days of Twitter, exploring the use of social media in professional practice in bite-sized steps. They also developed the first old in HE training session on one-to-one practice, exploring a range of approaches for this area of our work. They are a member of the Association of Learning Developers in Higher Education, a certified leading practitioner of learning development, the co-chair of the old NECHI Professional Development Working Group and a fellow at Cambridge. What's more, in 2019, they were awarded a National Teaching Fellow for their work in pedagogy and practice of academic and digital literacy. I am out of breath. But anyhow, can you guess who is joining me today? It's the wonderful Dr. Helen Webster. Helen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Is that me? I barely recognised myself in the intro. Well, it's, it's fantastic to be joining you and it's a great initiative. I love the podcast, so happy to be here. Fantastic. And of course, it's you. But anyhow, how are you keeping, Helen, in this um, weird and wonderful time? Um, keeping okay. There's been a lot of adaptation necessary, which I'm sure is true of a lot of us. I've been working from home basically since March, since that one day in March where we were told, you know, the next day the university will be closing. And uh, we went home and, and moved the entire of our provision online overnight, pretty much. So keeping all right. But yeah, it's been it's been quite challenging times, as I think it has been for all of us. Yes, exactly. And likewise as well, I've seen March 2020, I just found myself working from home and been working from home since then it's quite a a weird time anyhow I want to talk about you talking like kind of discuss the amazing things that you do so perhaps to start us off then what kind of things do you do because you're a learning developer by day but what exactly is that and what's your day-to-day task well learning developer it's it's a fairly new thing and I say thing because it's, it's still it's so new that people are still sort of you know debating what is it that we are are we a profession are we a pedagogy are we a community of practice who who is a learning developer and for me um, I suppose in in shorthand you could describe what I do is I'm a study skills tutor I'm one of those people who works usually in a central service sometimes based in a school or faculty to teach study skills that's not quite how I see what I do um, so from my perspective I'm a learning developer and my role is to to help students to make sense of their learning, to, to understand the conventions of this strange place that we call university, 
um, to try adapt to the practices of study in a particular subject or at a particular university and try and negotiate and, and make their way and, and become successful. So I cover things like learning how to learn. Um, I cover things like, well, most uh, prominently would be academic writing. So how to write academically, but a whole load of other things, you know, how do you revise for exams? How do you manage your time? How do you prepare if you're going to be presenting a poster? How do you read effectively? How do you think critically? So there's a whole range of, of things that we expect students to do and to do successfully, which are often called study skills, but of course it's not quite that simple. So I could be working one-to-one with a student. I could be sitting down with them to discuss a particular snagging point that they've encountered in an, in an essay. I could be running a central activity like a writer's group to try and help students to bring in a little bit of structure and, and community, I suppose, to their the writing, which is a very solitary thing. I could be um, called in to help develop and deliver a workshop as part of a module to support a particular assessment. Perhaps it could be dissertations. So you've got 30 students who've never written a dissertation before. I might come in to deliver a workshop interactive session on that. I could be writing study skills materials online or paper-based stuff. There's a whole range of stuff that I could be doing as part of the day job, but it's all geared towards helping students understand, make sense of and adapt to get good at the whole business of studying and learning. Oh, that's brilliant. I now understand why someone else on an earlier episode mentioned they want to be you because you're practically kind of hold power or you're kind of the go-to person, sounds like, to for help. Uh. We're very helpful people to know, um, but power is an interesting word. Maybe that's one we could come back to because one of our key core values is is emancipatory um, and non-judgmental and, and student-centered um, partnership. So yeah, power is an interesting one, but certainly I will help if help I can. <laughs> Brilliant. So you, you have a blog with a really rather interesting title, but uh, we can discuss that later on. <laughs> but uh, this, you've blogged a while ago about the induction and the transition and the, the concept of this uh, university citizenship test which is rather interesting i've never thought about it like that when i'm a student when i started my courses and now thinking about it having read your blog is somewhat quite interesting it is actually taking a test isn't it essentially when you have that induction do you want to just explain just tell us a bit more about that yeah um i suppose this is an issue that i've been thinking about on one level quite some time because people in my kind of role tend to get brought in very much in induction Um, to teach students the skills they need to know. And then once they know them, they can just get on with it. And actually, in in practice, we know that model doesn't work, that actually what I'm teaching students, what I'm helping students to understand isn't just a sort of set of technical processes to go through, things to do, practices to enact, um, simple rules to follow. And it's not something that you can learn before you've really got your teeth into your studies. So for things like essay writing to make sense, I think 10 top tips to write the perfect essay um, well, you could go down that route, but actually it's it's only once you get set that first assignment and you can start to contextualize what an essay at university might look like or what um, revising for an exam in your second year might look like or what actually doing a dissertation is compared to writing an essay. It's only once you actually got that experience and are surrounded by the context that you're really able 
to make sense of the advice that you're given because then you can put it in practice you can see whether it works for you or not because obviously all learners are different and we all study in ways that work best for us or not which is where I come in so the whole idea that you can kind of during induction give students everything that they need to know about uh, writing an assignment or sitting in an exam or critical thinking in the abstract without any context without any chance to try this stuff out and, and, and sort of start to build the experience in it doesn't make sense at all so one of the things I've been doing throughout my career is try to get away from that okay let's invite the the learning developers in in week one tell them everything you need to know and that's it so for me transition is a much much longer tail thing we're always in transition really the first year to the second year is a transition even coming back after Christmas is going to be a transition for students back into you know the second semester so transitions are happening all the time because as learners hopefully we're always changing, we're always evolving, we're always developing, the goalposts are always shifting. So if you're still writing in your third year, the same way that you were in your first year, you need to, to up your game a little bit because you're not being judged as the first year would. Those skills shift and evolve the same way that you as a learner and your understanding shifts and evolves. So for me, induction has always been a bit problematic because of that. What we're talking about really is ongoing transition. But you mentioned the idea of the sort of the, the citizenship test and that that's a much more recent realisation, really. That was earlier this year in the midst of the sort of Black Lives Matter movement when we were really talking much more focusedly about things like decolonization colonization and, and, and how we not just are more inclusive, that is teaching students how to be more like white middle class male students, but actually how we how we decolonize that, how we diversify it and how we validate and hear a much broader range of, of experiences and voices. And it occurred to me sort of working on our university induction program that what we need to do is, is to foster a sense of belonging, that students feel part of our community, that they understand our practices, the strange language that we speak, or that they feel that they want to start learning that, that they not just feel that they have to, to become that white middle-class male student, but that they can participate in their learning in a way that's authentic to them and will allow them to bring themselves to learn. It's their learning after all, it's their degree. So induction for me mustn't become a set of things, a set of information or processes that you have to learn to belong, to become one of us. You have to be like this. You have to behave like that. You have to do these. You have to memorize these things. So I wanted to get away from that idea that induction is about, okay, um, here's a list of all the things that you need to become. Now we'll quiz you to see if you've actually taken them on board, in which case you belong. It's actually much much longer term than that, but also hopefully much more inclusive because you, if you're trying to foster a sense of belonging, you cannot tell somebody how they must experience that. That's something that comes from them to feel that they belong. I read a newspaper article at about that time, which was describing an, an academic at Oxford as a black academic, and he studied at Newcastle just after I was actually a student at Newcastle as well back in the 90s and reading his account of his experience at Newcastle compared to mine as a white middle class female student just broke my heart you know the, the way he was describing how he had to leave part of himself out of his studies he'd had to sort of put on almost an extra extra voice to talk to people or, or learn to behave or learn to like different things that didn't really feel authentic and that one had to sort of displace the other that didn't feel right to me at all and that's where I made the connection that actually this this is like 
a citizenship test what we're doing here this needs to be different we need to find a way of welcoming students that lets them bring their whole selves to study rather than trying to fit the mold of the white male middle class student Yes, brilliantly. And I think you've touched a couple of points, really interesting points. So if I go back to the bit when you've mentioned about the induction and that transition from year on year, it's like finding that sense of belonging. And you've mentioned that obviously going after Christmas, you need to kind of find yourself again. But how about now? I mean, in this pandemic, all of a sudden everything is virtual. And I feel for those students who've just started as well, because they just started in a new course online. But then when we actually go back to in-person activities, how do you think that feeling for them? Because it's quite the opposite when normally we go from in-person to factual learning, but now it's like from factual learning back to in-person. Well, do you think that induction or that transition for these students particularly will, will be any different? I think that's a really interesting point, actually, isn't it? Because we're assuming that, oh, we can go back to normal and everyone can just relax. But actually, for a lot of our students, our new first years and our new master's students, our new PhD students, they've never been here in the normal sense. So it, it will be quite a shift for them. I'm hoping it will be a natural and, a, and a, a normal feeling shift for them to come back in person. But if you think about it, they built relationships, they built connections with their course mates, with the staff who they've never actually met in person. And that's really hard to do. I think a lot of people have been feeling very, very isolated. So how you translate those digital online relationships to face-to-face ones and make that smooth and, and sort of a relief almost, that's going to be quite difficult. And I think some of the ways that we've been teaching online have in some ways been great. In some ways, it's been very, very hard for all of us, I think. But suddenly learning is so much more accessible than it used to be. You know, suddenly, yes, we can stream things online. Yes, we can record things. Whereas previously, we that might not have been the norm. So that kind of thing, I hope we don't lose that because a lot of students will have kind of shifted their study practices to accommodate learning online. And there are bits there I hope we don't lose because they've been incredibly liberating, I think, for some students, being able to not just watch the recording of the lecture afterwards, but actually the lecture is is born digital. Hopefully it has been reimagined as not an hour's lecture, as if it was in person a second best. But there's been an awful lot of learning around, actually, we, we could do this differently. One of the most interesting things to come out of the, the pandemic and the shift to online learning for me has been to, to think about how much of what we think of as learning actually is content delivery. Is that the same thing as teaching? Is that the same thing as learning? So I'm hoping we can go back and just use this as an opportunity to, to look again and to reevaluate how we best do things. Do we want to go back to hour-long lectures in lecture halls? We might, because it is it is a social opportunity. It is a way of structuring your time and your day, which I think students are really missing. But then again, it is, you know, why, why are we asking students to come together for an hour to sit and listen to us yakking on? They can't stop. They can't pause. They can't rewind. It's a very strange way of doing things. So maybe we can just stop and rethink, not just students readjusting to coming back, but actually I think staff need to readjust a little bit too to actually what works best and why are we doing things the way that we're doing things Mm, exactly I think I quite like the point where you nowadays we can pause things right or rewind but actually if it's in person you can't really slow down (laughs) the speed of it but now you can really slow it down to the way that you really understand it an interesting point you picked out is that for these students to find themselves or find that sense of belonging in higher education But what about for these students to foster that sense of belonging without having to change their identity? Do you think the identity 
aspect plays a big part in terms of yes now everything is virtual so that they can hide behind the screen but if it's in person they can't really hide because they are in the classroom it might do yeah everyone i think is familiar with the phenomenon that students have in many cases preferred to have their cameras off and i was looking at at the request of a few of our academic staff writing something for students on basically persuading them to turn cameras on and i thought well there are actually probably very good reasons why they might want cameras off and i sort of listed those reasons out and i thought well how, what what are we actually looking to do because the the end result is not to get students to turn cameras on necessarily it's about creating a sense of social presence and just because you can see a student on camera doesn't mean that they are socially intellectually mentally <laughs> present at all so we're using it as a proxy so i think we need to again look at what we've learned there and think are there other ways in which we can help students bring themselves or those aspects of themselves to class which they're comfortable with how can we be more accepting of um, students as they are rather than expecting them to fit this norm and I think visually being able to see students is one thing but also one of the things that I work with so much is is academic writing obviously students bring essays and dissertations and reports and what have you to me every day so Academic writing is one of the ways in which we construct our identity, in which we present ourselves. And there's an awful lot of anxiety around, I need to write properly. This isn't proper academic writing. This doesn't sound academic enough. But then again, but it doesn't sound like me either. This is not how I write. This doesn't feel like me. And that to me is, is a very interesting um, phenomenon that we need perhaps to rethink how we expect students to articulate themselves because there are other ways. Or, I mean, why, uh, the question is, why are we asking students to write at all? And really, it's so that we can make their learning visible to us so that we can assess it. So why does it need to be in a very particular way? I think there are some reasons. There are reasons to do with the, the way a particular discipline constructs itself it's it's ontology and it's epistemology the way that it it constructs knowledge that yes okay maybe you do need to write in that way because you are not just learning knowledge about a subject you are actually learning to think as a practitioner of that subject you're learning to think as a historian as a chemist as a medic but there are other aspects of it that I think actually why why do we insist on that one of the very common questions is but why can't I write I in my essays and to be honest I don't know, because it's a fiction, isn't it? It's to there to create this illusion that we are just disembodied brains, unaffected by anything around us. The fact that we are hungry, the fact that we are a bit grumpy today, the fact that we uh, you know, are dealing with an annoyance nearby, uh, the fact that we're female, the fact that we, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe a native speaker of English, or the fact that we may be Chinese, or the fact that we may be dyslexic. So it's, it's as if we want to get rid of ourselves in our writing and have this sort of very emotionless, decontextualized self. And actually that's that's not remotely true, is it? It's a fiction. So could we find a way to be a bit more accepting of our students' selves? And that to me is very much part of this kind of idea of decolonization, that there are other ways of knowing, there are other experiences that are relevant to our studies, whatever subject that we're in. So can we enable students to bring some more of themselves to learning and see that reflected in the way that they write, the way they present themselves and so on. Yeah, so, so as you were just saying there, Helen, I was, I was just questioning, why do I write? <laughs> I mean, by day I have to write because I have to, but it's part of what I'm, I've signed up to. But like you've mentioned, you can't really write I 
informal writing but that's I guess that's where reflection comes in you can then just put I in reflections but it's an interesting concept there because there's a lot of emotions and feeling through this whole process at university not just getting the knowledge and you know understanding why you're doing this field or why you're doing this topic but it's all about this learning curve as well and you've touched on this academic writing and I know that academic literacy model is another big thing of yours, of which it kind of covers the disempowerment of the students. Do you want to just talk a bit about, about this model? You know how much I love frameworks. <laughs> I love a good framework too. <laughs> um, yes, this, this is uh, academic literacies and it's in the plural for a reason. There's a few writers do about this and, and who've sort of developed the theory, but the I always go back to is Leon Street, 1998. Any learning developer will be familiar with that reference. And it outlines three ways of looking at, well, what we could call study skills, but particularly academic writing, but not exclusively, I think. So the first model is to look at study skills as surface, instrumental, technical procedures that you go through. So it might be that you give people um, a list of things that are um, common to academic writing. Don't write I, never use contractions, useful sentences, you know, that kind of thing. And it's it's kind of very surface. Those are superficial features. You know, there's nothing particularly profound about them. There's nothing really there to do with learning or the self in them. They are purely processes or, or techniques or skills that you perform. So you could think of study skills in that way, whether it's time management or whether it's writing or whether it's how to revise or whatever it is, do these things. And it's what we call the deficit model. It's presuming that the student does not know these things they do not have these skills and they must be given them to make them up to a sort of fully formed fully fledged student so it's it's the remedial model it's some of the students they don't know things we'll have to tell them and that'll fix the problem and it locates the problem in the student it's the student who has the lack and if we just give them the information, that solves it, job done. So it's very much like the induction model that I was, was mentioning earlier. We'll just give them the skills and that's that. The students will be whole. And of course, we know there are a lot of problems with that. My whole line of work evolved out of the widening participation agenda. And this kind of approach was very much targeted towards those students who were deemed to be the weaker students, the deficit students, the ones who needed a bit extra help, support. You know, it's that kind of language, very pathologizing. It's not very nice to feel that you're in need of support. Support is a word I tend to, to avoid, really, because it has that kind of very remedial um, connotation. So if we Yes, okay, you do need to teach students grammar and there's a few technical things that you need to learn, but study skills actually we can think of as being something much more about participation. So the next model, the next way that you can think of it is academic socialisation. So that's the next part of the framework. And academic socialisation is acknowledging that university is kind of a strange place and that we do use strange ways of talking here, of strange language and strange practices that we do. And that people like me, my role would be to act as your friendly guide. Come in and I will show you around and I will tell you how it works here so that you can learn to become one of us. And positive as that is, it does at least acknowledge that the problem isn't necessarily the student. It's this rather odd environment that we work in. It does still presuppose, A, that the student wants to become one of us. I mean, we in working in academia, we're all very successful academics. This is what we wanted to do. Uh, we can't assume that, though, of our students. So it kind of presumes, again, that the student wants to become one of us, i.e. white middle class male by default and, and join in our community wholeheartedly. 
but it also kind of smooths over a lot of issues that it's not really questioning the status quo. It's not really saying things like, why do we make students not write in the first person? It's weird. And it kind of smooths over a lot of the differences. There is no such thing as academic writing. Um, It's different in different subjects because, of course, different subjects talk about different things in different ways for different reasons. So a physics lab report is going to be written very differently from an English literature essay. Of course it is. So it kind of smooths those over and and assumes that there is a way of doing things in academia. There isn't. There are many ways of doing things. So while that model has its plus points and while we use it on occasion, what we're aiming for is, is an academic literacies plural model, which first acknowledges that firstly, there are different academic languages, that different subjects write in different ways for different reasons. I'd add on to that, that different levels write in different ways for different reasons. So a first year, if you think about the kind of authority that a first year undergraduate can claim, they're using an awful lot more reference. They are backing themselves up much more. If you were still writing like that as a PhD student, it would be deemed too basic because as a PhD student, you are supposed to have a lot more authority to be able to speak with, you know, sort of using shortcuts. You're assuming that we know this because we is is kind of peers as a, is a, is a PhD student, is, is you know, a, a junior researcher. So you can claim things with more authority in different ways as a PhD student. So you're writing differently at different levels because you are a different person. You're an authority or you're you're an undergraduate. Secondly, it also acknowledges that meaning is contested, that the academic writing is not a transparent mode, that I can't just read your writing and see directly into your brain. It's not a pane of glass. So when I'm reading an assignment, I am reconstructing what I think you're saying and I'm having to, to do that act of interpretation, which may or may not be what the student meant to say at all. But what's happening also is, is you mentioned the word power right at the start. If I am marking an essay, I have the power to say, no, it doesn't mean that you are wrong. So there's a, a power differential when, when the student and the, the marker of that assignment construct or perceive meanings differently. And of course, we also know that different academics construct meanings differently, because if you get one marker, they're known to be really harsh. If you get another marker, you know he hates it when you write that kind of phrase. He hates the word thus, avoid it. So you're always, the word is negotiating. You are always negotiating. You're always you're sort of looking out for signals and responding and and engaging in these sort of dialogues of, of constructing meaning together or clashing, your meanings clash together. So academic literacies is acknowledging a number of things. One, that writing or indeed any study skills practice is a socially situated thing. You are doing it in a context with particular people who relate to you in particular ways. Those ways are often hierarchical because I'm just an undergraduate and he's a professor and he's marking my work and has the power to tell me, no, it doesn't mean that. And that there is always that plurality happening and that it is a job of negotiating meaning. So it's it's complicated, all of it. So yeah, my job suddenly seems an awful lot more complicated than it initially did. I just need study skills. No, I don't. <laughs> I'm somehow wading into this complexity. Okay, so so you've described this academic literacies model then, and I know that you're for your role at your university, you work with students all the time. So how do you ensure the students you're working with are engaged in the way that you want them to be engaged? Um, it's all about dialogue. 
So one of the, the ways that I, I try to do that is to position myself differently. I'm an outsider and learning development values are emancipatory. That is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to um, sort of liberate the student from this kind of system of, you know, imposing knowledge, imposing uh, meaning. It's, this is not the banking model of education where we sort of, you know, give students knowledge and feed it into their brains. This is about the student being free to construct their own learning in a way that makes sense to them. And also within the context that they're in, i.e. their discipline, they can't just sort of make stuff up and expect it to be right. But it's, it's always that kind of social situation. So I try and position myself outside of that. I'm an intermediary. I work between the student and the lecturer, their school, their institution, their course, their module, whatever it is. And I will try and help both sides to understand each other better. I'm more student facing, obviously, but I do try and feed that back into into staff development and staff knowledge as well. So I try and position myself as that kind of third space stepping outside of it I'm not here to judge I don't mark your work and because I work right across the whole university I probably don't even understand a lot of what the essays are about Um, I could be reading you know a chemical engineering report one minute a nursing reflective piece the next then I'm moving on to a historical analysis of a of a, a manuscript I have no idea half the time I don't know about the content I am not a subject expert so I kind of give the student you know you are the expert in this I am not and I, I work very much as as a dialogue. You know, I'm I'm coaching. I'm not telling. I'm I'm helping them to draw conclusions and and try and get them to make sense for them as well. And where the students are uncertain, okay, that's interesting. Let's look at that. Where they're unsure or uncomfortable, that's interesting. Let's look at that. Rather than sort of making them feel, oh, you should know this. Obviously, you don't write in the first person. But that's interesting. So in your discipline, in your experience, it seems from your feedback and from what you've been reading that you don't write in the first person. Um, let's look at why that is let's look at how that makes you feel let's look at ways in which you can kind of come to terms with that or challenge that or whatever it is that you want to 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 do to respond to that let's have a conversation about it so it's very very dialogic my work I don't tell them what to do Uh, much more like a counsellor or a coach I will ask questions I will help them explore things and you've mentioned a lot of benefits in terms of how you engage not only with the students but with the staff as well but On the flip side then, what are the risks of your role that can bring into this educational system, do you think? We ask awkward questions, don't we? Like, why are the students writing not in the first person? (laughs) Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I mean, I am employed by an institution for a purpose. There is that danger that you get, um, you know, about how I work, that I'm not criticising the institution, but I'm not making the student feel that they're stupid, that they're the problem but really just genuinely asking very open, very innocent questions. The emancipatory practice, one of the most challenging aspects of a learning developer's work. We've talked a lot about it as a community and what it means and and how it's done. Does it mean I have the power to set students free from the shackles of their, you know, sort of very um, neoliberal Western education? No, it doesn't. But what I can do is help the student to question practices and to question how they want to respond to them and what the options might be for that. I'm not going to be sort of setting people free anytime soon, but I I can at least start to have those conversations and start them off by asking questions, basically. I'm, I'm not sort of freeing shackles. I'm sort of picking away at the mortar between the bricks and just seeing what happens, letting the students know that 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 you know they can ask those questions. We're, we're teaching them to be critical thinkers. So many people who are might be listening to this podcast might be feeling you no know, not so confident in terms of applying this literacy model, academic literacies model, or even knowing how to engage students in in the way that you've described very well. How what would be your say Helen's top tip in getting started? 
This has been something which has been obsessing me for the, the last few years of my career, really. Academic literacy is, is a theoretical model. Um, it's, it's evolved very much out of education and um, linguistics. But how do you do it? Because it wasn't designed as a practical model. How do, you, how do you do academic literacies? So I developed a model which I call the five P's of LD, which is a, a technique which I borrowed actually from clinical psychology of all places. I suppose education and psychology aren't a million miles apart. Um, but the five P's of LD is, yeah, how do you do this? How do you, how do you practice it? This is very theoretical. How does one go about having that conversation? So I was talking to um, actually my family about this, my family clinical psychologists, and I was chatting over the dinner table, as you do, about this problem that I have, that I want to be, you know, very academic literacies, very emancipatory in my practice, but my whole job is about giving advice and guidance, which is a deficit model. You lack it, I will give it to you. And I said, it, it makes me feel like, like I'm a doctor, like my role is, is to kind of, you know, examine and diagnose the illness and prescribe the remedy. You know, where is the student in any of this? I say I'm so emancipatory and student-centered, but that doesn't feel like it. How do I have these conversations? My father, who's a clinical psychologist, and my sister, who's a clinical psychologist, sort of both said, sounds like you need, you need to be doing formulation. And I said, what's that? Formulation is a way of two people coming together, the, the, the clinician, or in my case, the learning developer, and the, the patient, or in my case, the student, and joining their two expertises together. So what I can bring, I know how universities work. I know a bit about pedagogy. I know a bit about learning and teaching. I know... Um, a bit about you know educational psychology and how learning works. I, that's my expertise. The student is the expert in themselves. They they know what suits them best. They know what works for them. They know their subject better than I do. Um, I'm not an expert in every subject around the university. They know, you know how they're feeling today. They know their lecturers more than I do. They know their subjects certainly more than I do. So they have a lot of expertise to bring. So if we can combine the two, on equal terms, that could be quite powerful. So that's the basis of, of formulation. It's kind of a, a melting pot in which those two expertises are brought together and they are kind of integrated. They're brought together by the meaning to the, the student. So it's the student really who who's the one who sort of comments on, yes, I think that'll work for me or no, that doesn't really sound like that's what the lecturer wanted from what I know. Or So what I'm doing is based on those two expertises I'm proposing hypothetical solutions or explanations do you think this might be the case do you think that might work for you and it's the student who gets to decide because they're the ones who know themselves best and the way that I do this in cognitive behavioral therapy they have the five p's and I thought well that's kind of a handy acronym I could borrow that so they will look at the presenting problem so the problem as it presents itself isn't always really the real problem. So that's why we call it the pre presenting problem, the one that they walk in the door with, the thing that's brought them to you. Um, and they'll look at a whole other list of other factors which begin with P, um, predisposing, precipitatory, what's, what's caused this to happen now, what's keeping it going, the perpetuating factors and the protective factors, what helps you to help yourself. So those are the CBT Ps. And I thought, well, those aren't quite going to work for us because what I'm dealing with is not a mental health issue. I'm dealing with learning, which is a very different thing. So what would our five Ps be? What would our conversation be about? And I thought, well, presenting problem, yes, because students do very often bring a problem, inverted commas, through the door. You know, I've, I've not done so well on my essay or I'm spending ages revising, but it's not going in. We'll spend a bit of time talking about that. But what I'll be asking is, so whose problem is this? Why do you think it's a problem? 
Is this something you've got any feedback? Oh, it's the lecturer's problem. Or is this something that you're perceiving? The lecturer says he works fine, but you're feeling for some reason that it's not going as well as it should. Oh, it's your problem. So whose problem is this? Why is it a problem? Why are we using the word problem about? Is it a problem? Because learning is meant to be challenging. Um, it is meant to unsettle you a bit. It's meant to shift your worldview. It's meant to be difficult. I mean, that principle of, of desirable difficulty, if learning's going too easy, it's, it's probably not sticking. So why is it a problem? And, and how much of a problem is it? Is it just this assignment or actually is this an ongoing thing? So we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll also look at what I call pertinent factors, and that's anything contextual that is impacting, influencing the student's learning. It could be at the moment, there's a pandemic happening. It could be, I'm just feeling a bit tired today. Sorry, I was out last night. It could be, I just want you to know that I'm dyslexic. It could be, I'm an international student and English is not my first language. It could be, sorry, I split up with my boyfriend last week and I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm not concentrating. Anything that's impacting on that student's learning. And it, it could be historic as well. It could be, my teacher always told me I was rubbish at writing and I've carried that narrative with me all this time. Anything is very, very holistic. Anything I need to know about that student that would help me understand what's going to work for them or not, or help them to understand and comment on it. Let's bring it into that conversation. The next P is perception, because as we know, if writing is not a transparent medium, and if we use very strange language at university to explain what we want, there is going to be the need to negotiate what that means. So the perception of the task, what do you think your lecture is looking for? What do you think your lecture is expecting from you? What do you think that essay question meant? And it's not always clear. The number of assessments I've seen, I'm like, I don't know what they want either. I don't know. I don't know what they mean by that. But together we can try and puzzle it out. So what is your perception of the task that you've been set? Either their perception might not match up with what I understand about learning and teaching, but it's unlikely that they mean that. Let's, let's see if we can find a way forward. Or it might be that they've got their own understanding shaped from their previous educational experience. There's a wonderful phrase or a quotation from, from clinical psychology. Um, at some level, it all makes sense. Even if the students sort of gone off with a very, very strange interpretation of what they think that assignment means, at some level, given who they are, given their experience in life, that's actually quite a reasonable reaction. And it only makes sense once we can see that context. Well, of course, if your previous teacher told you that, then of course you would think this. That makes sense. Now I know where the student's coming from, then we can work with it rather than just saying, oh, you're wrong. There's another uh, wonderful way of saying that. I think it, it was attributed to, to Skinner, you know, the famous behaviorist. The rat is always right. So if you set up an experiment and that little pesky rat is doing something totally unexpected and unwanted, instead of blaming the rat and saying, you know, you're doing my experiment wrong. Actually, there is something about the conditions that you've set up that that rat is reacting to. And from the rat's perspective, makes total sense. Why wouldn't it react that way? There's something about the environment that, that we've created, that students are responding to, whether we realise it or not, that makes sense, actually. So let's look at that. Let's look at it from the student's perspective. What are they seeing? And that actually can teach us a huge amount about our own teaching practices. So presenting problem, pertinent factors, perception. The next one is process. So instead of looking at their assignment first, I will say, just tell me a little bit about how you went about writing this. Describe your process. Tell me why you went about doing it in that way. And then maybe we can kind of see if, if the issue, if it is an issue, is located there. 
And then finally, I'll ask about the actual product, which could be the piece of writing. It could be if it's time management, it could be the timetable that they've made for themselves. Um, if it's exams, it could be the revision notes, the, the something, the product, the physical outcome of what they're working on at the moment. Let's have a look at that. But instead of me grabbing hold of it and looking at it, I will get the student to gloss it. So you, you talk me through this and explain to me you know, why Why you've got your revision in three-hour blocks. Let's look at the way that you have um, written criticality into this essay. Show me a bit in this essay where you feel that you have been critical. Let's talk about that. Rather than me grabbing hold of it, I want to see it through their eyes as well as through my own. So I'll get them to talk me through their, their, their product, whatever it is. And that's kind of the conversation that we have. It might be very light touch. It might not be in that order. It might cycle around and go in circles. It may well be that one of those is the location of the issue. We need to look at one of those and that's what will set us on the right path together. And very often the presenting problem, when we come to the end of the session, that wasn't the problem at all. A problem with writing, for example, my essay is too long, I need to write more concisely, I need to cut words. Actually, we'd spent a lot of time talking about the process, you did a lot of reading, you did too much reading. The reason you got too many words is because you were trying to cram all of that reading in your essay. There is nothing wrong with your writing style. So it can surface an awful lot of things if you try and look at it from the student's perspective and see that perspective as being valid. So I will be asking a lot of questions about that. I will be what I call juxtaposing. I'll be putting two things together. I'll be saying, okay, so you were telling me about the way that you went about doing this and why. Let's put that together with the product and how you felt it worked. There's a mismatch there. Why do you think that is? So we're putting two things together, their perspective versus the lecturers, the process versus the product. And they can, that's that word negotiation again, I love it. They can negotiate the mismatch, the gap to see a way forward. And all I'm doing is kind of asking questions and suggesting hypotheses. Do you think this might work? How about this? There's a range of ways you could approach this, which one appeals to you, rather than just saying, oh, your essay is badly structured. You need to plan it properly. You need to make a bullet point list. Okay, we're done. Next. So it's, it's a much more powerful way of getting to the heart of the student's learning, basically. Wow. What a, what a brilliant tip, Helen. And I think you've really highlighted the, the importance of the five Ps of learning developers. I think in a way that we are all somewhat a learner developer because we are teaching or learning about our subject, but we are actually also developing the way we perceive and getting others to perceive the same kind of perception in it as well. So that's kind of all the time we have, you know, in terms of discussing all the fantastic work that you do. I think we can go on forever and forever discussing it. But let's end with a fun part then, shall we? We've got a quick short firing round of, well, for our listeners and for myself to know you a bit more. These are random questions and yeah, just to get to know you a bit more, really. So are you ready for a bit of fun, Helen? I am. <laughs> okay, right. So let's start off with then your favourite hashtags. My favourite hashtag is is one of the proudest moments of my career because I made it up myself and it caught on. Die learning styles die. I'm a great believer that what we do needs to be evidence-based. Learning styles is not a thing. So if I see anyone tweet about learning styles, hashtag lied, die learning styles die. Wow. <laughs> like, I think the hashtag is like, it's somewhat quite unique and interesting. I think we'll get a conversation going, definitely. Okay, next question. Tea or coffee? Tea. Hey. Tea, always, yes. And it's got to be black tea or green tea. Herbal tea is not a tea. Okay. If you are to pick one learning or teaching platform or tool, what would it be? 
Oh, that's a difficult one because we tend to assume it's digital, don't we? Um, my first degrees, my original expertise is actually in medieval studies. And you know what? A pen and a book is a technology and it allows you to do all kinds of things very flexibly. And the books that I was reading have lasted for centuries. So I'm going to go with a notebook and pen, I'm afraid. Very basic, but it works. I agree. I agree. I love coming from the pen and writing and just doodling or jogging things down. So brilliant. What do you do to recharge your energy after a long, stressful day at work? I play the banjo. (laughs) It feels like a shameful secret, but I do. I play the banjo. I started to learn a few years ago and I've been driving my partner and my neighbours crazy with it ever since. Oh, wow. A secret is now out. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favourite movie? Oh, my favourite movie. Um, Well, it's coming up to Christmas, so I'm going to pick one of my more seasonal ones. I love The Lion in Winter. It's medieval, so it gives me, you know, sort of the, the nostalgia for the subject that you used to study. Um, and it's just full of just fantastic acting and really, really spiky, witty dialogue. So I'm going to go with The Lion in Winter. Okay, great. So your handle, your Twitter handle, contains the word rat. What is your favourite rat? <laughs> My favourite rat. Um, on Twitter, I am the Scholastic Rat. My blog is Ratus Scholasticus, but that's not a real thing. Um, my favourite rat, I, I actually do keep rats as pets. So obviously my rats, um, my little fuzzy friends. So yes, uh, my favourite rat is Ratus norvegicus, which is their, their species name. And my favourite rats, personally and individually, are, are my own boys. Random question, but how many rats do you keep as pets? Currently three. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. I don't think I know anyone else who, who has rats. Intelligent animals and they are very quick learners and you can train them. They're about as intelligent as dogs, so you, you can train them. They are very, very smart little creatures. Except you can't really take them out for a <laughs> no. walk. <laughs> Sadly not. So other than your phone then, what would be the one best thing to carry around to show students or colleagues in corridors? Ooh. Probably whatever I've been reading recently. I get very excited about things when I discover new articles and new books and new things. So I would I'd probably carry around a copy, whatever it was that I'd read most recently and get all enthusiastic about it. I've, I've recently been reading a lot on, on post-humanism, which is not something I knew much about. And I'm not sure that I still know much about it, but I'm very happy to grab someone in a corridor and say, did you know about this? So yeah, whatever I've been reading most recently. Great. What is your favourite music genre? Oh, that's a tricky one. I like lots, but I grew up, my my uh, family, my dad particularly, is is a folkie, and uh, that's the genre of music that I play on, on the banjo. So I would say folk music, um, particularly the northeast where I'm from. We've got a very, very rich tradition of folk up in Newcastle in the northeast. Well, I can just imagine that you've got the banjo with you, or in fact, actually carrying around a campus. <laughs> just playing it playing it to the rats <laughs> with the rats as well yes definitely so how about this one what's your alternative career that you secretly wish you had but never actually pursued oh when i was a, a child um i wanted to be lots of things one um that that uh, remained an awful lot for a long time was batman i wanted to be a batman so yeah i still do want to be batman who wouldn't so apart from a superhero um what else would I like to be there's so much about my job that I love I love working with people I love asking questions maybe a lawyer maybe maybe a barrister something like that where I can get very questioning and analytical and nitpicky but also still work with people oh fantastic so Lee Fally mentioned you in his podcast but who is your favorite learning and teaching hero well there's so many inspiring people out there I'm gonna have to go with the great Sally Brown 
um, Professor Sally Brown, who is um, an education developer, very, very well known in her field and has known me longer than I've known her. Um, she knew me when I was a baby. She's one of my mother's friends. And she's also been professionally such a huge inspiration as well. When I'd sort of finally grown up um, and, and started working professionally and I realized what she did um, and how amazing she was. Um, she's, she's my amazing Auntie Sally, of course, but she's also an incredible um, um, practitioner in her own right and really, really interesting, passionate, um, intelligent person. So I'm very, very lucky to have known her both personally and professionally. So Professor Sally Brown. Oh, good. And finally then, because our podcast is called The Education Burrito, what's your favourite burrito fillings? Ooh, um, definitely something spicy. Didn't put some salsa in there for me. And uh, yeah, maybe some chilli. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode. And if our listeners want to find out more about what you do, Helen, how can they do so? Um, you follow me on Twitter, where I am um, Scholastic Rat. Uh, my blog is also Rattus Scholasticus. Um, so yeah, if you Google the Scholastic Rat, you'll probably find me. Um, or if you want my my day job, I w- I'm head of the Writing Development Centre at Newcastle University. Brilliant. Again, a big massive thank you to you, Dr. Helen Webster, for sharing with us your work in academic literacy and all the fantastic work you do. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and tuning into the Education Burrito. Make sure to hit the subscribe button on whichever platform you're listening on and be sure to like it and share it on social media, tagging us at the hashtag the Education Burrito. If you have enjoyed our chat today and fancy coming onto the show, no matter as a student or member of staff, do drop us a message as we unwrap learning and teaching in the Education Burrito. 